part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Today's teaching is by Pastor Daryl Ruiz. Last time we were in Ephesians, we started in chapter 4. In the very first verse, Paul says, Therefore, based on everything I've told you before, I, a POW of God, essentially. I mean, Paul is in prison. He's a prisoner of war, a spiritual war, nonetheless. And he's going to now ask us, he's going to beseech us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. How do you respond to a prisoner of war who calls you to duty? I mean, the guys earn the right. Amen? The guys earn the right. If you go to your 4th of July celebration this year, and you sit next to a veteran, maybe a man who served his country, a woman who served their country, and they've lost a limb, and they ask you, they ask you to honor the holiday, you will rise to the occasion. You sit next to a POW, you will even... You will even rise higher to the occasion. Amen. There's something about this prisoner of war beseeching us, calling us to action now in the final chapters that that carries a weight to it, doesn't it? And what does he ask of us? Remember what he said? He said, I'm calling you to walk in a manner axios, worthy. It's a picture that we keep our life in balance to our calling. Just like the axis of our earth. It's what everything spins around. It's a picture of balance. Paul says our life ought to stay in balance. In balance of what? Remember everything I told you in the first three chapters? Your proper response to that should equate. It should measure up. It should parallel. And so now our conduct, our activity should balance. That's what it means to walk worthy. It doesn't mean that you earn what God has done for you. To walk worthy of your calling means that you walk in accordance with your calling. That the transformation that is true of your faith, it plays itself out in your life. That's what should be. If it's not, then maybe we ought to consider changing our name because Paul would say it doesn't match, it doesn't measure. There is no parallel there. I, a POW of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Item number one on Paul's list, when it comes to walking worthy of the calling... Our number one reaction, response, the parallel that should be true in our life to balance all that God's done. And if you had to put that thing in a word, it would be his, his grace. That amazing grace that he unpacked in three chapters, the balance to that, the first place he goes is the unity of the brethren. And that says something. How do we get unity? question is legalism, the ultimate answer. Do we make a long list of rules and regs and police each other? Is that, is that at the end of the day the answer? Is that how we get unity? It's not how we get unity. We could issue you men all the same sport coat when you come in the door. We could require the same haircut. We all wear the same patent leather shiny shoes. We could all do some things that created the appearance of unity. Would that unify our hearts? Not necessarily. Is, is legalism the answer to this? Are rules and regulations and us policing one another? Is that how this ought to work? No. Paul knows differently. Why not? Why doesn't it work that way? Because the heart of the truly converted, and there's a caveat there because I, I had to say the truly converted is sensitive to the spirit residing within him. 
And He will long to be obedient. Amen? He will long to be obedient. He may struggle, but He desires to please His Savior. The Puritans would call this the unction of the Spirit. It's that thing that is in us now because the Spirit lives in us. We have a new unction, a new want-to-er, my pastor used to say. We have a new desire that is born from within because Christ is in us. And so that's, that's the rule. That is the regulation of our heart. Paul said to the Romans, you remember? He said that you are under a new master. You are still a slave, but you have a new master. And the master over you now is grace. That is the authority over you. The controlling factor, the motivating factor of our hearts to obedience is grace. So it makes sense that that would be what fuels us to unity. It's not legalism. We don't mandate obedience. We watch the hearts of those who were once made of stone softened into hearts of flesh. So, verse 2. Where should our focus be as a body of believers? Where's the first place Paul would go when he talks about Walking worthy to be unified. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. That's where we were last time. I mean, Paul could have gone anywhere. He could have asked anything of us. He's a POW. Whatever you say, Paul, I'll do. I mean, it, it should stop you in your tracks to realize what he says is, why don't we focus on humility around here? Why don't we focus on things like gentleness? Why don't we put our... Focus on being patient and showing tolerance towards one another in love. How about we do that? That's, that's where Paul goes, number one. In fact, we should be diligent to preserve, verse 3, the unity of the Spirit. Now, I want you to notice something. Notice that we aren't creating unity. We are, what is the word? Preserving unity. Unity is for the believer. Unity is in the church. Notice who accomplishes the unity. It is unity of the spirit. We have residing within us, if we've been truly converted, the spirit of God living inside of us. The unity comes from the spirit. Unity is not something that we build up in the church. Paul very specifically says that unity is something that we fight to preserve because it is already. It's a done deal. How's that so? Christ on the cross won our unity. So here's the point. Whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, whether you get it or not, whether it always seems to be true or not, we as a church, by the edict of God, are one. We are unified. Paul, what's our job? Your job in humility, patience, gentleness, showing tolerance to one another is to be diligent with all speed, literally. You are to work to preserve, to maintain what God has accomplished. God, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, from Jew to Gentile, he has unified us in grace. And so there's no JV, no varsity. There's no hierarchy. No one has to sit in the back. Nobody gets to sit in the front. First come, first serve here. There is no order. We, we are all on level ground. He's, he's done that. He's earned that. And so what we need to realize is the unity is established 
We need to recognize it. And our job, number one, is to preserve it. We preserve the unity. It's not an option. It's been achieved not by us, but by Christ. It is already because of God's doing. We maintain it. That is our number one response to the grace by which we are called in the first three chapters. To fight for our unity. The last uh, expectation on the list of the cornerstone family member expectations. Do you know what the expectations of cornerstone family member are? Maybe some of you missed them. They're posted down in the hall out there in case you forget them. But if you've joined this place as a member, as a, as a, as a member of this body, at some point or another, we, we've said to you that, hey, we've got seven expectations, seven very simple expectations. You know what the last expectation on the list is? Is that you guard the unity of the body. You guard the unity of the body. Uh, is it the last because it's the least important? No. It's not the last because it's the least. It is last because in the end, in the final evaluation, if we don't have the unity, we are null and void. You can do all the other things that we expect of you. Growing. Sharing. Getting involved. Serving. You can do all those other things, one through six. But if in the end we do them without unity, then all that we have done is null and void. A uh, Cambodian couple I read about this past week, married 18 years, decided to call it quits. Divorce. In the settlement, they agreed to split everything. I mean everything. It was an equitable split that they took very seriously. In fact, when they split the house, I mean to say they split the house. Put that picture up there. That's it. This was the husband's idea, the wife says. (laughs) And he brought some of his buddies with uh, saws and they climbed up on this thing and literally cut the house right down the middle. See, right through the, the steps as you go in the front door, right down the middle. I don't know how they accomplished this, but they got it. He left that for her because it was still standing, and he and his uh, buddies carried off his half to his parents' house. And he moved back in with mom and dad. I guess he just kind of attached it to the side and knocked a hole in the wall. I, I don't know what she's going to do right there, but um, that's a bad split. The local news showed up. The entire village stood in the street to watch, but also to laugh and to scoff. To make fun of the ridiculousness of the whole affair. As we might as well. It caused me to wonder how entertaining the church is to the watching neighbors. When we fail to guard, protect, and preserve the unity of our house. Of our home. I wonder what they are thinking when we look at each other. As a family, as a body. And we decide to call it quits. And give up on one another. You think they might be entertained? The end of verse 3 says we have a bond. We have a bond that is peace. It is a tie that binds us. Whether you know it or not. Whether you like it or not. If you name the name of Christ. If, if you're going to walk under the banner of Christian, then you not only have to fight to preserve the unity, which, by the way, infers that it's not going to be easy. You get that, right? But he follows that up by saying, whether we know it or not, we have a bond 
that unites us. In this marriage to the groom that is Jesus. You know what I would say? I would say, what God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Isn't that the intent for the body of Christ? So we are, verse 4, look at what he calls us now. One body. I mean, that's the concluding thought. We're one body. And maybe just the pause question for the body is, do you know that we are one? And do you know that the oneness goes beyond right here at Cornerstone? Do do you get that? That it goes to Japan, it goes to Cambodia, it goes to uh, Florida, to California. It, It goes around the world for all those who would name the name of Christ. And we, uh, ever since around about the first century that man got a hold of the church and we started, you know, walking it out, attempting to walk worthy, we started having all these schisms, and it's unfortunate, isn't it? We started having all these splits of the house, and it's unfortunate. And we come up with good reasons to splinter over here and come up with our own new thing. And we like to look back over here and say that these guys have got it wrong because of this. And there may be some good reasons. But can I just, because of today's passage, could I just ask us to to think about, is it worth it? Is it always worth it? I mean, you've got to understand that the intent of God, the intent of the life and death and resurrection of Christ and the establishing of His church to be salt and light in this world, you've got to understand that the intent was for us to be that one church. We are one body. Good, bad, and ugly. Now Paul's going to illustrate by going to somewhere very interesting. Look where he goes. He goes to the Trinity. What better place to see unity amidst diversity than the Trinity? This inner relationship in the Godhead. Verse 4, we're one spirit. Verse 5, one Lord who is Christ. Verse 6, one Father. He also gives us an indication of the roles they play individually. And so we get one Godhead, although there's one Spirit, one Lord, one Father, and they all play specific roles. What are those roles? Verse 4, the Spirit calls to us. The Spirit woos us. Verse 5, by faith we are buried in Christ into our baptism. That's the role, essentially, that Jesus plays. Verse 6, the Father is over all, through all, and in all. I'll give you more on that in just a moment. But it's a picture of his authority and his working through us and being alive in us. You see, they all have their individual role to play in the Trinity, right? But we only have one God. There is diversity in in their carrying out of their duties, amen? But they are above anything and everything the model and the example of unity. And so it's an apt illustration for Paul, isn't it? He says, we're one body. Come to think of it, it's kind of like that one spirit, one Christ, and one Father, all together making one God. What a good example. Amen? What a, what a beautiful example. That's Paul's illustration. Verse 7. Look at what he does now. 
He's been bringing us kind of together. You might think about it as if he's been causing us to take our, our focus off of the individuals, ourselves, and back up a little bit and get that one body picture. All right, and now he's going to zoom back in and he's going to say, okay, now what about, what about you, ma'am? What about you, sir? What about you, child? What about you who are an individual in this body? What about this piece? What about that part or this member? Because we, we, we are individuals, right? We are. So how do we deal with that? Look what he says, verse 7. But to each one now, one body, but now to each one, grace was given to us. According to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 8, he goes Old Testament on us. Watch this. This is from Psalm 68. You can look it up at another time. Therefore, in order to explain verse 7, what does it mean that Christ gave out gifts that he, by grace, measured out according to Christ's gift? What does that mean? Here's what it means, Paul says. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. And he gave gifts to men. Now, you've got to ask yourself while you're reading through your Bible and you come across this in your, in your quiet time, where does that come from? Why does it fit here, Paul? If you go back to Psalm 68, let me just summarize what happens in Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is where God gives victory to Israel and then leads them back into Jerusalem. And it's sort of like a parade going back into Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant, which symbolizes God's presence in the nation of Israel, is at the front of the parade. And Psalm 68 paints this picture of God leading his people after victory back into their kingdom, back into Jerusalem. And it's this big party. It's a big celebration of the victory and the power of God. And the Ark of the Covenant is taken back to the Temple Mount. It's raised up on high and put back where it deserves to be. But then it says that as the captives are marched into town, that means those who are captured in the victory, in the battle, they're also brought into town all the spoils of victory. And so when you win a battle, here's the picture. You march back in and you throw a party. The, the general gets raised up. He gets elevated and he gets the credit. All those who you've captured, the spoils of war personally in human form, they're marched through as a display of the victory, as a display of the general's power. And then what you see is all that you have captured, all the gold, all the silver, all the horses, whatever it is that you have confiscated from that victory, from the other guys, you bring it home. Now, but here's what the general gets to do with it. And Psalm 68 says this, is that now he disperses all the spoils of war to the people. He hands it out. And it's a picture of just this celebration where he lavishes these gifts, these spoils of his victory on the people. Paul uses that picture and he says, it has been historically, physically true for the nation of Israel that this has happened. But you know what, church? It is now also spiritually true because Christ, the great general, has won the victory and in celebration in his power by the authority granted to him, raised up on high, he gets now to disperse, he gets to spread the gifts of the spoils of war. Spiritual gifts these would be. Verse 9 and 10 might be a little confusing to you, but let me explain. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who ascended, or he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. That's a mouthful, isn't it? 
Here, I think, is the, the point of the passage. He's the one who's won the victory. And now he gains the authority. How did he get the authority? He got the authority to be the one lifted up on high, to be the, the one and only king who has now the authority to disperse the gifts because he was the one who descended. What does it mean that he descended? It could mean a couple things, scholars believe. It could be a reference to, uh, in Old Testament times, uh, if you read your Bible carefully, nobody died and went to heaven. It just doesn't happen. In the Old Testament, if you died, you went to what Israel would call Abraham's bosom. It was, in a sense, a, a holding place until the payment through Christ's blood could be shed and now we get freed into heaven. Does that make sense? It's a little bit confusing. There is an indication throughout the New Testament that at Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, there is a, there's a time where he goes to set the captives free. It could be a reference to that. Some hold to that. Uh, others, Calvin among them, would hold to the position that this is a statement of Christ's humility. That him descending is a picture of his incarnation. That he has, by example for us, he has condescended himself. He's taken off his king robe and he's put on a human robe of flesh. In Philippians, it'd be put another way. It'd be put that he humbled himself, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant in the likeness of man. He was obedient, even obedient to the point of death, a death like a common criminal death on a cross. For this reason, though, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, that his name every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. That's what Paul said to the Philippians. I think that that's a, a good interpretation right here. I think it fits what he's trying to do. Where are we aiming here? We're aiming at unity. How do we get unity? Humility. I'm not above you. You're not above me. What example do we have? We have the Trinity as an example. What other example do we have? We have the example of the great general who not only is the one who is lifted up, but he's lifted up because he was willing to get low. He was willing to humble himself even to the point of death. And so, Father, who gets the authority now? Jesus gets the authority. What does he get the authority to do? He gets the authority now to hand out the spoils of war. What are the spoils of war? Verse 11, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Don't get caught up in the gifts today, okay? Don't get caught up in the gifts. Another day, another sermon, I'll explain to you the difference between apostles, pastors, prophets, teachers, evangelists, et cetera, et cetera. That's another sermon for another day. I'm afraid that if we focus there, then we'll miss the main point. The point is, is that Jesus is the general who gets to pass out the spoils of war. These are examples of the gifts that he hands out now spiritually. But the real point of the passage is the why. Why do we get these gifts? What's his intention? Is it just for us to play with them and enjoy them and have them all unto ourselves? Is it about us? Is it about me? Is it about you? No. Look at the next verse. Verse 12. Here is why he gives out these gifts. It is for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the what? Individuals? The body. The body. See what he does? Boom. We're one body. Now let's look at you individually. And you might have this. You might be gifted in this way. And you might be gifted in this way. But just like the Trinity and just like 
Jesus, the great general who's won this spiritual battle over sin, Satan, death, he's handed out new gifts now, spiritual gifts. And guess what? It's not just for you. It's for the the bettering of his kingdom. It's for the equipping of the saints. Let me tell you what equipping means. Equipping is a word that means to mend. It means to fix. When Jesus approached his would-be disciples, he found some of them fishing and he found others of them fixing their nets. The word used for them fixing their nets is this word, equipping. It means to take a fishing net and to, to mend it, to make it back to a usable tool again. What is your gift for? What did God hand out the spoils of his victory to you for, to I for? Generally speaking, you know what it's for? It's so that we can help mend one another. So that we can be returned to our original designed use. Amen? So that we function now as God has intended us from creation to function. So, don't get caught up in the gifts today. Why? Because the gift is not about you. Don't be worried about which one you've gotten today. Because the gift is not about you. Whatever it is that you have been gifted. Whatever measure of grace Christ decided to hand you. To portion out to you. As he went down the line. Don't worry. It's not about edifying you. It's about equipping the saints. So that we can get to work. So that as one harmonious family body. We can function correctly with him as our head. How ought we respond to the sword of God who's described in the first three chapters of the letter to the Ephesians? What is the appropriate parallel? What is the appropriate, worthy, balanced response to the great grace that he has lavished upon us? What is is that response? How ought we respond? To respond to such grace. Number one. Number one. Be gracious to each other. How about. How about Paul says. How about we start. With gentleness. Humility. Patience. Tolerance towards one another. How about instead of focus on what may be wrong in your brother. How about you focus on how you can help them be made right. How about when things start to point us in any direction that might be divisive, we war against anything that would disrupt the unity of this body, your part of the body that you take home with you and feed lunch, so that maybe we can help change the course and change the perspective of the greater body of Christ that the world sees out there and mocks and scoffs at. Because we can't seem to get on the same page to save our lives. We're cutting houses in half, left and right. Paul, how do I walk worthy? What do you want me to do, number one? What do you want me to do, number one? How about you preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? There should be a beauty to us. 
There should be this great work of art painted by the hand of God that is the church. People who do not know Christ should stop and stare at the church in amazement. And you understand that when I say the church, I don't mean this building. Can I just tell you, they drive right by here and they don't care. You and I, living out there, walking worthy, we are the church. That should cause them to stop and turn their head and squint their brow and say, there's something strangely attractive about what's going on there. There's something there that I, I want and I need. That, that's what they should say. And we should say, well, let me tell you what it is. It's not us. We're, we're helpless. By grace, we've been saved through our faith. And so, so can you be saved. It's Christ in us. He's our hope. He's our glory. The sermon title that I gave for the bulletin, I don't know if you noticed, it was one word, it was rhythm. Here's why I gave it that title. It's a parallel to uh, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, specifically chapter 4, is uh, probably most likely 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, in chapter 12, he explains in greater detail the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's a better passage for preaching on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He explains them in greater detail. And he says that we are all parts of the same body. And imagery he carries over here. We're all parts of the same body. You may be a hand. You may be a foot. You may be a toe. You may be an eye. You may be an ear. You may be an elbow. What have you. Okay, Don't take that too far. You may be one part. I may be another. But he says very clearly, none of us has the right to say to another body part that you're unnecessary. Very clearly, he says, even though we have different parts, different roles to play, we're all necessary. None of us has the right to say to the other, you're unnecessary. Then in chapter 13, he says that all these gifts are, in fact, worthless. If we lack one thing, you remember what that one thing is? Chapter 13, verse 1. All these things would be null and void if, in fact, we do not have love. I.e., a love for one another. And so he goes through this great list of very magnificent gifts. I mean, amazing gifts that Christ portions out to his body spiritually. Wow. Even to the point where he would say, you might be caused to say, I want that one, or I'd like to have that one, or this one would be great. Could I? How about that? And even some, then he says, earnestly desire those. But he he says very clearly that, that if we don't have the love, no matter what our gift is, if there's not an umbrella of love that is birthed out of our hearts because of God's love for us, then you know what? We might as well not have a gift at all. You may have the greatest tool in the workshop, but you will never have all the tools. Do you hear me? You may have a great tool. It may be the the best in the shop. But you will never have all the tools. You may be this tool, 
that you're going to find one day you need this one as well. If there is no unity, you don't get to use that tool, do you? And you are deficient in that area. And so you may be able to hammer, but you can't saw a board. If we don't work together in love, Paul says, here's where I got rhythm. He says that we become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And the picture I got in my mind is us here in the church all just bringing pots and pans in and just banging away on them. That'd be the picture of the church, I think, that Paul would, would have us to understand. We may have gifts, we may have instruments, we may have tools to use, etc. But we just start banging away on them, irregardless of those who are around us. If there is no symphony, if there is no concert, if there is no rhythm to our utilizing our instruments, our tools, then it's just a mess, isn't it? It's just a loud noise that gives us a headache and it gives the world a headache. Um, it's easy to make noise, isn't it? How about we focus on making rhythm in the body? Uh, you want the worst closing illustration in the history of preaching? Can I give it to you because I have no other? <laughs> One of my childhood favorite movies, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. The original the original, um, the, the, the new guy creeps me out. Uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, these children win the right to meet Willy Wonka, the great. He's been a recluse. Nobody's seen him in years. And nobody gets to go into his factory. Nobody knows how anything is made in there. It's a great secret. It's a great mystery. Everybody wishes they could see what the secret is. Finally, Willy Wonka decides to open the doors, but only to a select few. You had to get a golden ticket, right? You get a golden ticket, and you get to go in. Kids go in, and it's magnificent. The doors open to the factory. And there's chocolate water fountains and waterfalls and rivers and there's candy grass. And it's just amazing. And in their childlike minds, they're blown away. They just, they're just in awe. And some of them just freak out and tear off and start eating whatever they can eat. And others can't move because they're just in shock of how beautiful it is. But then all of a sudden, all of a sudden something interesting happens. As you're looking around, you start to see this guy over here. Or this lady over here. And they're working. They're toiling away. And then after a while, more start to pop up. And then they break out into this crazy song, right? The Lumpas. Yeah, these odd little figures. All in the same outfit. All with the same hair, crazy white eyebrows. They're kind of scary. If you're a kid. But you know what else they are? They're impressive. And the movie just stops. And you, and you hear this, this harmonious tune as they toil. And as silly as it is, that's the picture I got of how the church ought to be. It's the Lumpa principle of church building right there. Write a book on it. You'll make about $5. Now, we're not going to dress you all funny like that. And we're not all going to put on the same color hair and dye everybody's eyebrows. We're not going for uniformity in here. That's not the goal. 
Listen, listen close. We're not going for uniformity. You know what we're going for? Unity. And the desire of Paul and and this pastor's heart is to, to look into this magical thing called the church to be in awe of not just the beauty of what you create in your toils, but that in your toiling, there would rise from among the family this, this harmony, this rhythm, like the lumpus. And that as they work, they sing their little song. I'm not going to sing the song. Don't worry. And it's, it's magical. And it's, there's a, a lightness to it, isn't there? It's no trouble. There's an ease to it. And they're happy to be there. The Lumpa principle of building church. Let's pray. Father, would you give us a rhythm in the family? Lord, we don't want to be, we don't want to be the gong show in here. Trying our best, but just making racket and noise. We're not, we're not just banging away pots and pans in here, Father, with our lives. We long to walk in a manner worthy. We long to walk out our Christianity in a response to your great, amazing grace. That's the desire of our heart. And what is a worthy response? Well, today, at least, we know that it starts in humility. Maybe we can be a little more patient a little more tolerant. And maybe we can fight against anything that would push us apart. And maybe we could resist anything that would cause us to be critical. Maybe we would maybe we would pray against anything that might enter into this place that would that would be like a a distracting noise to the work of your kingdom that your church is to be about in this world. Give us rhythm, Lord. Give us, as a family, a sweet song that we sing to you with our lives that woos the world to grace. Lord, you're good. You're good. Thank you for being the example of harmony. Thank you for being the example of humble obedience. Obedience all the way to a cross. Our response is is loving obedience. Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you take these last moments to, um, to ask the spirit that resides in you. Where is your life heading in the direction of rhythm? But also ask the hard question, Lord, where am I? Where am I? Where am I being a distracting gong? Either in my home, your home that you take home to feed lunch, or in your church home, or maybe even, maybe even. And can I say and confess that pastors are guilty of this? level, maybe even in the greater body of Christ. 
God, where am I, where am I in rhythm? But where am I being that, that noise, that distracting, annoying, headache-creating noise that the world walks and even runs away from and mocks as they go? And then ask God to change. Change your heart. Can we do that in our final moments? Why don't you stand? Why don't you stand? Let's sing and then we'll pray and be dismissed. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.